Well, good morning. I have <laughs> had several thoughts as we were uh, in worship, singing in worship this morning. Um, uh, first of all, have you ever seen um, Cam so comfortable with a microphone? I mean, you give him one week to preach, and he comes up here, and it's like he commands the place. And uh, I actually joined uh, last week live uh, uh, during the, uh, the worship service, and I was so thankful for him. Did just a great job. In fact, I'm thankful for all of our pastors uh, on staff here. We, have, we are richly, richly blessed, and I'm deeply thankful for them. I've said this. I've said this before, but it used to be I'd go away on you know a, a vacation. People, I'd come back. People say, "Oh man, we're glad you're back." And now I go away and come back, and you know Michael or Josh or Cam or JP to preach, and then they say, "Well, are you already back?" <laughs> I've gotten used to that. The second thing, I, I, I hope you've enjoyed our Easter set, if you will, our Easter uh, display. It, it, that took a lot of work uh, to, to have that uh, for Easter, and it took so much work, and we liked it so much, we decided to keep it up for a few extra weeks, but this is it. We're taking it down. I know, oh, yeah, but it has been real, and I'm deeply thankful for Ethan and the team that, uh, that put that up, and we've been able to enjoy that over the last few weeks, so very thankful. I will tell you, if you're watching online, it looks much better in person than online. Uh, Online just doesn't do it justice. Two weeks ago, I began with the statement, Jesus is coming back, which is an indispensable, undeniable, inviolable truth of the Christian faith, a truth I suggested that ought to impact our lives to include, among many other things, that we look for, even long for His return. Now, believers may disagree as to the timing or the circumstances of that return, but with this we must agree Jesus is coming back. Now listen, it is then that the kingdom will come in all of its fullness, but not until then. In fact, until then, we follow our Christ in the way of the cross, dare I say, even in the way of suffering. Yes, we have the glorious promises of future uh, blessing, even prosperity. Yes, Scott Andrews just said the word prosperity. We have the um, Holy Spirit as a guarantee. He's the first fruits of more to come. He's the pledge of our future, future inheritance. But therein lies the problem with some American Christianity, particularly within the hyper-charismatic, I didn't say charismatic, hyper-charismatic movement, because they have what is called an over-realized eschatology. Now, that's a big term, over-realized eschatology, so let me break that down for you. Eschatology is the study of last or final or ultimate things. It includes things like the last days, uh, the end uh, time when Jesus will return in victory, vanquishing once for all uh, His enemies and rescuing His own. His, His followers will then enter the eternal state and receive the fullness of the kingdom. Then... And then we, we know that, right? We're familiar with verses like these in 
Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus told a parable as like a master who goes away on a, on a journey and when he leaves, he leaves his servants with some talents, uh, a measure of money, five talents, two talents, and one talent. But there's a day of reckoning or accountability coming when he's going to come back. Jesus is coming back, you see, and we'll have to give an account. And to, to the one that he'd given five, he produced five more. To the one he gave two, two more. And we read these words, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Can, can you imagine what that will be like? The joy of your master. Later on in that same chapter, after separating the sheep from the goats at, at the judgment at the very end, believers from unbelievers, then the king will say to those on his right, that is the sheep, come you who are are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, it is then that we will get the fullness of, of the kingdom after the final judgment. Can you imagine again what that will be like? Jesus, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am in that place that I have been preparing for you, there you may be also. Incredible. John even gives us a little glimpse of that prepared place in Revelation 21. No, we're not quite there yet. But in Revelation chapter 21, he says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, he will live among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among him. Notice what John focuses on. So I want you to stop right there just a moment. You understand, I'm going to take a little aside, you understand the greatest treasure of heaven is God will live with us. Greatest treasure of heaven, not the streets of gold, not the crystal sea, not, not the mansions, not the family reunions. Listen, I've done a few funerals in my ministry life, and in, invariably I hear someone say something, it's fine, I get it. They say something like this, I'm so glad that mom gets to see dad, dad gets to see mom, grandpa gets to see grandma. I get that, I understand that. But that's not it. The greatest treasure of heaven is we get God. He will actually be among us. Listen, if your favorite song is Elvis Presley's I've Got a Mansion, there's a problem. I, I grew up hearing it. I don't, do we have any um, Presley singers among us? Uh, okay, I would invite you to the platform. Well, I'm not going to sing it then. But it... But it goes like this, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. <laughs> he had a little more than a little. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander but walk on streets that are pure as gold. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely, never did. I'm not discouraged, I'm heaven-bound, I'm but a pilgrim in search of the city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. D does anyone notice something conspicuously absent from that song? Thank you. 
God. That that song would be humorous if it wasn't what so many long for, prosperity, both here and in the someday yonder. As if that is our greatest treasure. Listen, I've shared this with you well, a few times before, but it bears repeating. John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, wrote these words. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, um, all the phys- physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict, that's no war, or, or any natural disasters, hurricanes or, or, or tornadoes, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? First time I read that in a book, it literally took my breath away. Not because I thought there might be people out there that actually think that it would be okay, but I was struck to the core. Would I think that would be okay? He goes on. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Those are stunning words. You see, the best thing about the return of Christ is he will take us to heaven where we get God. Again, that's just a little aside. John goes on in Revelation 21 God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying pain. First things have passed away and he who sits on the throne says, behold, I am, he, he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. It's glorious. And from there, John gives, is given a little vision of the new heaven and the new earth, culminating in chapter 22 with this view of the river of life flowing from the throne of God. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal. Why is it clear? Because there are no impurities in it. Why are there no impurities? Because it's coming from the throne of God and, and, from the, uh, and from the Lamb. It flows in the middle of the street. On either side of the river, there's a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. What's your favorite fruit? I'm going to guarantee you there's not going to be any grapefruit. Sorry, old people. <laughs> Listen, if, if you've got a fruit and you have to put sugar on it to make it edible, that's a problem. That was also an aside yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I don't know what that means. I'll tell you when we get there. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bond servants will serve Him. That's what's coming. 
We will be face to face with God to serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I love that. None of these inconspicuous little tattoos, a little cross tattoo that you have that occasionally, if you don't have a shirt on, someone sees it. No, no, no. His name is going to be on your forehead and everybody's going to know who you belong to. No longer any night. They will have no need of the, of the light of a lamp nor the light of a sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true and the Lord, the God of the Spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. That takes us back to chapter 1. Behold, I am coming quickly. It means eminently. It means at any moment. Be ready. Here's the question. Do we want him to? Do we want him to? We do if we understand we are not living in the fullness yet. This is what is promised in what is called the eschaton, the finality of all things. When Jesus returns, banishes the wicked, receives his people, and dwells with us face to face forever. Do we want it? That's what's coming. That's where Revelation is taking us. That's where all of history is headed. Now listen, an over-realized eschatology, coming back to that, is this. It's when someone expects that the eschatological or the future hope of Christianity is already here and now. You heard them. They may say something like this. Well, if Jesus has come and the kingdom has come, then there should no longer be evil in the world. Everyone should be healed of sickness. There should be no poverty or suffering, and everything should be just the way God designed it to be. And if you believe that well enough, if you have enough faith, well, then you can experience it. That's expecting what's coming to be right now. That's expecting to be living your best life now. Again, this is called the prosperity gospel and over-realized eschatology, which expects something which will ultimately um, happen for those who are in Christ, but they expect it right now. One of the problems with this teaching is that it places an incredible burden on people by telling them, if you're not healthy, you're sick here today. If you're not wealthy, struggling to make the finances meet, uh, th uh, then you must be doing it wrong. It fails to take into consideration the nature of the world and our time and place in God's plan of redemption. Uh, and not to mention, it fails to take into consideration the sovereignty of God. It fails to take into account the book of Revelation. If that is true, we don't need the book of Revelation. It's a lie. Why was it written to suffering believers promising something better to come if we don't need something better to come? Listen, if you have an over-realized eschatology, why would you even long for heaven? If you have it all now, why would you want Jesus to return? Why would the book of Revelation be written to struggling, suffering believers, well, maybe in the third world, struggling, suffering believers, encouraging them to persevere, to stay faithful, to lift their heads because our redemption draws near? 
Here's, here's a question for you to consider. Do you suppose that those prosperity teachers and preachers who have your money live in, who live in mansions now in prosperity now, do you suppose that they long for heaven? Or are they experiencing it right now? And what of the way of the cross to which we are called? Again, an over-realized eschatology expects the blessings of the fullness of the kingdom to be experienced right here, right now. Health, wealth, and prosperity are yours for the taking. And the problem is it makes prosperity the goal. And it isn't. I have a friend, Dr. Rusty Osborne, Ph.D. from Midwestern Theological Seminary. Goes to church here when he's in town. He lives in Missouri. He's written a book entitled Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life in the Presence of God. The Fullness of Life in the Presence of God. As I was talking to him about this particular book, he suggested the problem with the prosperity gospel is not so, listen carefully, is not so much its content. Yes, if you're focused on the gifts rather than the giver, the blessings rather than the blesser, then that is a problem. But, but the problem is not so much the content, but the timing. That, that blew me away. Some would accuse me of having an under-realized eschatology. I get that. That, that blew me away. Those who espouse such a gospel are not necessarily wrong, hear my thinking, not necessarily wrong in the what of prosperity, but in the when, the when of prosperity. I had never thought of it that way. Think about it with me. I imagine the new heaven and the new earth will be beyond imagination, better than anything that we've ever thought. So why do we long for the return of Christ? Because when he returns, yes, we get all of the blessings promised. Yes, we get the fullness of the kingdom. And best of all, we get God. That's why we long for the return of Christ. We remember when Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. He took his disciples to, to that event, and he, they got a bit ahead of themselves like we are prone to do. Is it time? Is, is it now? Is it time for you to set up your kingdom? Is the fullness of your kingdom here? Meaning, do we get it all now? We've been confused with that idea for a long time. Christians are always wanting the blessings of the fullness of the kingdom right now, and yet we aren't living in the fullness of the kingdom. It's this concept, you've maybe heard it this way before, of the already not yet. Yes, we are already part of the kingdom of God. We are subjects of the kingdom. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We, we are right now priests uh, to, uh, to his God and Father. We have both access to God and are on mission for God to tell people how they can be reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son and receive the Holy Spirit as a first fruit, a promise of the best yet to come. That's what we're on mission for. Is it now, they said? Many uh, prosperity teachers will tell you yes because that's their goal. But Jesus responded, it's not for you to know the time of my return. Until then, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and it's going to cost you. Readers of Revelation, it's going to cost you. 
At this point, Jesus was taken up right before them into heaven. I suggested a couple of weeks ago that we not miss that a cloud received him out of their sight because clouds in the scripture indicate divine presence and majesty. For example, when God delivered his people from Egypt, the pillar of cloud led them by day. At Mount Sinai, a cloud came down and covered the mountain. At the tabernacle, a cloud covered the tent as God came into the Holy of Holies, so also later the temple. And so it's significant in Ezekiel chapter 8 when that cloud, when God's glory leaves the temple. A cloud signifying the presence of divine majesty can be called the Shekinah. Perhaps you've heard that word, the Shekinah glory, which refers to the glory of God by his presence. Well, as he ascended, a cloud received Jesus out of their sight. Two angels appeared and said, "Uh, this same Jesus who's been taken up from you in a cloud will come in just the same way. I think in a cloud as you watched him go into heaven. This same Jesus is coming back, and while his coming uh, will be similar, that is, with the clouds in the sky, its purpose will be a bit different. The first time he came as Savior to give his life a ransom for many, but when he returns, he will come as King of kings, Lord of lords. He will come as victor, glorious conqueror and judge to lead his people to victory. And Matthew said it like this, then the sign, speaking of the second coming, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see. See, it's visual. All the tribes of the earth will see it, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Mark said, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then at this visible coming, it is then, don't want to... Hurt anybody's feelings, then he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest ends of the earth and the farthest ends of heaven. Luke said, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, listen, people, those of you who are suffering and struggling as a follower of Jesus Christ, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, we are supposed to be ready, hearts locked under the promise of his return. Question for us this morning is, does it matter? Do we want him to? Or have we been so distracted that we seldom think about it? I'm suggesting that some of the signs that we're seeing, I'm not going to name any, some of the signs we're seeing may be pointing to his soon return. Paul, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, those that is Christians who have died. For, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is now not visible, but audible. With, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have died in Christ will rise first. Then those of us, if we happen to be alive and remain, uh, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord uh, in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Jesus is coming back and his second coming will be different from his first And the book of Revelation tells us about it. It's all about the second coming of Christ. It all points to Revelation 19 and the new heavens and the new earth in 21 and 22. The promise of his return and rescue and blessing for his followers should bring courage and comfort to suffering, struggling believers. It should change the way that we live our lives.
So we, we, we started in Revelation chapter 1. I expected to be a little bit further by this time, but here we are. We looked at the, 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 the kind of the superscript and in, in, in verses or the introduction to the book and in verses 1 to 3 where we, we, we find that God, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ given by God to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who then gave testimony to the Word of God, or, or gave witness to the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. And then he said, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and do what it says because, his com- because his, the time is near, the time of his return. So John, then he went to the salutation, John, to the seven churches um, uh, uh, that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from uh, him who is, speaking of his presence right now, he's with us. I know it may not seem like it. It may seem like the Roman emperor is. No, 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 no. He is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, implying that there are going to be others who are raised from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, I know it seems like the emperor might be, it might seem like that the, the, the U.S. government that thinks they rule the world are in charge. They're not. Thank God. Ruler of the kings of the earth to him, and then he breaks into doxology to him who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood, made us to be a kingdom. Right now, we are a kingdom. That's important. We are priests right now. To him be the glory and dominion. Don't miss those words. Glory and dominion. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. Behold, verse 7, 8, that's what we're going to look at today. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because they pierced him. They've rejected him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here's the way we outline that prologue. Just kind of went through that with you, the superscript, and then the salutation, causing him to break into doxology, which leads to verses 7 and 8. It's, it's, it's the purpose. He dangles the promise of his return, which is the focal point of the book of Revelation. If you're taking notes, write it down. The focal point of the book of Revelation is the return of Jesus Christ. I know you're suffering. I know you're struggling. I know you're paying the price, and it seems like that, that, that we've lost or that God is lost or maybe he's not, not really in control, but know this, he is, and Jesus is coming back. Promises unerringly, definitively, and conclusively sure. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, Now, I've told you that the book of Revelation has more Old Testament allusions. That means references that aren't necessarily direct quotes, but allusions or references than any other New Testament book. In verse 7, um, these, are, these allusions are found in Daniel 7, which John refers to many times uh, in this book. In fact, he's already referred to it earlier, just haven't pointed that out. And also Zechariah 12. We're going to look at those, okay? In Daniel 7, after... Visions reminding Daniel of the empires to come. Remember the vision in 
uh, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in, in chapter 2, a uh, head of gold, um, uh, chest and arms of silver, uh, in the middle of the torso of, uh, of bronze and, and legs and feet of, uh, of iron. It, it, spoke of the, it, it spoke of the empires to come. Now there, there are four um, animals reminding him, remember these, these empires are coming. In the midst of that, we read these words. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days, well, he took his seat. His vesture, that is his clothing, was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Remember that. We're going to see that again next week. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire, which speaks of judgment and purification. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. <laughs> and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. That sounds just like Revelation 4 and 5. We'll get there. The court sat and the books were open. Revelation 5 and Revelation chapter 20. This is a glorious vision of God who is the ancient of days. But the text goes on, you see. It says this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that sound familiar? With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. You should know that that, that verse, verse 13, has always been seen, both Jew and, and church, has always been seen as a messianic prophecy. And to him, this one who came to the ancient of days to God was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Does that sound familiar? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look at that. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in his kingdom as one which will not be destroyed. One is presented uh, to the ancient of days, God himself sitting on his throne. And to him, this one who came, was, was given an everlasting kingdom. And we will serve him. Remember? Remember we read Revelation 22. And his bond servants will serve him. Best part of heaven. Now, John takes that prophecy and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he broadens it just a bit. Son of man is, is not presented to the ancient of days in Revelation 1. That appears to have already happened. Now John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Everybody on the planet is going to see him. It will be a glorious return. I can remember when I was in... When I was a teenager, and hear prophecy preachers talk about this, they say, see, now we have the capacity for every eye to see him because we have worldwide television. I'm not sure that Jesus is going to need TV. Every eye will see him. Again, this is always understood to be messianic. You remember when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken to the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. There Jesus, this was Thursday night of Passion Week. There Jesus was interrogated uh, through the night, but he remained silent. Many witnesses were called against him. Problem was, no two of them could agree on their testimony. They were having trouble making any charges stick against Jesus because there weren't any. So finally, in exasperation, Caiaphas said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, listen, you have said it yourself. You got it right. 
Nevertheless, I, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That answer was a quote of two messianic prophecies. One in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I'm at the right hand of the Father, Caiaphas, and I'm in process of making you my footstool. That's what he was saying. Caiaphas knew it. And one in Daniel 7.13, we just read, coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas knew it. What was his response? He tore his robe and he cried, blasphemy, what more do we need? He knew that Jesus, in, that Jesus was applying these messianic prophecies to himself. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Son of God. Listen, if you hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, you take them to Matthew chapter 26. Yes, he did. And Caiaphas understood it. Coming in the clouds, and, and, and John here alludes to that truth further. When he returns with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That is, those who were responsible for his death. That's everybody. Remember on Easter Sunday, I asked and answered the question, who killed Jesus? I came up with four answers. The first was the Jews, and the second was the Romans, and the third was who? Us. We killed him. We killed him by every sin we ever committed, nailed him to the cross. We are responsible for his death. And so every eye that sees him, they will mourn. That is those who have not been freed uh, by their sins, uh, from their sins by his blood. This is a reference, an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, that's talking about salvation, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over firstborn. In the Zechariah verse that we just read, it is Israel mourning over their Messiah. Now, it isn't clear to them at this point that they are mourning over the one that they have rejected and pierced, but John makes it clear in John chapter 19, after they had pierced Jesus' side with a sword, he quotes Zechariah 12. But now here in Revelation, John broadens the prophecy to include all people of all tribes of the earth responsible for the death of Christ by their sin. Some suggest that this is mourning of repentance. I don't think so. It doesn't fit the context. They will mourn. Again, not in repentance, but mourning because they are responsible for the rejection of Jesus. And when they see him, they will recognize him, and it will be too late. Every eye will see him, and they will mourn. Some of you here today, um, you're, you're playing and, and, you're, and you're thinking, one of these days, maybe uh, I'll give my life to Jesus, and, but not now because uh, I, I like my life. I like my sin. And one day Jesus is going to come back, and when every eye sees him, if you've not given your life in faith to Jesus Christ, it will be too late.
This promise is to bring an unsettled comfort to those suffering for the name of Christ from those who have rejected Christ. Remember, Jesus will come to vanquish foes and rescue followers. Those followers who have been opposed by his foes. And at his coming, there's going to be a vindication for his followers. And this is to bring a certain comfort to us as we revel in the ultimate righteous judgment of God. It's not that we go, yeah, you're getting yours now. No, we revel in the ultimate righteous judgment of God. He's right. He finishes by reminding us the first of two times in this book that God himself speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, including, which also means to include the entire alphabet, like we would say from A to Z and everything in between. I'm the first and the last, everything in between. I'm sovereign. What he is just saying, I'm Alpha and Omega. I am sovereign over everything. There is a, not a maverick molecule in the universe. I know at times it doesn't seem like that I'm in control. I know at times it seems like that you're under oppression. It seems like that the, 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 these ungodly evil um, governments or emperors or presidents or prime ministers are in charge. They aren't. I am in control. I am Alpha and Omega. And then he says of himself, I am who is, as we're just saying, and who was, and who is to come. Looked at that a couple of weeks ago. I am present right now. I am the God who is. And I've proven that because I am the God who was, and I am the God to come. But he also says, I am the Almighty. Interesting to, to, to point out that the Almighty is used of God ten times in the New Testament, nine of them in the book of Revelation. Why? He's the Almighty One. Not the ones who think they are. Not the ones who oppose you. They, they, they think they've got something to hold over. No, they don't. He is the Almighty One. He is the Lord of hosts, how it's often translated in the Old Testament. He will be victorious. He is God Almighty. Amen. I finish with this. Here's the question. Jesus is coming back. Do we long for his return or are we satisfied with our current prosperity? In our heart of hearts, God, I want you to, Jesus, I want you to come back, but just not quite yet. Are we distracted? I've said it before, one of the greatest curses on the American culture is our prosperity because we look to it and now even promise it in the prosperity gospel rather than looking to God. Have we been distracted? Will his return be the completion of our hope or will it serve as an interruption to our already wonderful lives? For these readers, they could hardly wait. So it is to be, may it be for us. Let's stand for prayer.
Father, the, the promise of your return, you are the one who is to come, triune God, new heaven, new earth, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, rescue us from this evil age, proving himself to be victorious, the risen Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords. Father, would you help us to think often, to lift up our heads. As I read that verse in Luke, I couldn't help but think, we don't lift up our heads because we're too busy looking around. We're too busy looking around at all that we have. Would you help us to lift up our heads and to look for the return of Christ? And we say with John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.